Now I just want to introduce you to my friend Nate. Uh, Nate is our executive pastor. He has been on this team now for a couple of months. And it's just been a joy to have him work with us. Um, Nate is uh, a physician, and I feel like I, I, I think the thing that we love about him the most is the kind of healing presence of God flows through him on our staff team. And I'm just so excited to introduce a man that I deeply respect and love. So, Nate, thank you for sharing with us today. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, clapping. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you. Response there. Okay. As Chris uh, said, I'm, I'm, my name is Nate Smith. I recently joined the staff here as our executive pastor um, just in October. Before that, I was working at the CDC. I am trained as a medical doctor, uh, specifically in infectious diseases. And uh, my wife, uh, Kim, who's also a physician, and I uh, served in Kenya for about seven years as medical missionaries. That's just sort of by way of background, so some of what I say will make a little bit more sense. Our uh, gospel reading for this morning is found in, in the book of Matthew, chapter 11, beginning in verse 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk, lepers are, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor, poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken in the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The word of the Lord. This is now our third week of Advent, and we've uh, lit the candle we call the candle of joy. So perhaps it's a little bit ironic that our gospel reading from this morning begins in a very dark place, in a, in a prison cell. As a public health physician, I've had the chance to visit uh, prisons both uh, here in the United States and also in, in Africa, and I would say neither here nor there are they designed as places that are really uh, inspiring joy? Uh, they tend to be dark places. According to the Hebrew historian Josephus, John the Baptist was uh, imprisoned in the fortress of Makarus, which is east of the Dead Sea, a place that is probably even darker and more hopeless uh, than the prisons that I've been into. John the Baptist uh, was kind of a big deal in his day. Uh, he uh, was in the wilderness, but people flocked to see him and to be baptized by him. Uh, even those who didn't really like what he was having to say, the ones he called out as a, a brood of vipers, they were coming out uh, to hear what he had to say. John had his own disciples. I think you've pretty much arrived as a prophet if you have your own disciples. And um, John uh, was a prophetic voice. He lived in the wilderness, 
He wore, uh, he wore garments, uh, clothing made of camel's hair, which uh, seems to me probably neither fashionable nor particularly comfortable. And, um, and he ate uh, a diet of, of locusts and, and wild honey, which uh, I think is more paleo than paleo. <laughs> His message was very simple, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. <clears throat> Where he got into trouble though was um, was when he called out the ruler Herod Antipas uh, for taking his brother's wife as his own. Uh, that, uh, that got him imprisoned and eventually uh, beheaded. And our story picks up in that in-between time when John is in prison waiting, not knowing whether he'll be released or whether he'll be executed. A uh, time of, of anticipation and, um, and waiting uh, for John, much like uh, Advent is for us. John's question for Jesus is also very straightforward. Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? The question is simple, but it's very strange coming from this man, John the Baptist. This is the guy who, when he saw Jesus, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is not a guy who seemed to be in doubt about many things. But here he's asking the question, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? What's going on here? As uh, Chris uh, shared last week, uh, John the Baptist came preaching a message really basic of judgment and repentance. About Jesus, he said, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. But Jesus is out there saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, and come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. The one John was preparing for was going to baptize in the Holy Spirit and fire, and here Jesus was healing people and preaching good news to the poor. Could these really even be the same person? Perhaps it was confusion that prompted John's question. Or, or maybe he wasn't confused at all. Hearing about what Jesus was doing and realizing his own days were, were probably numbered, uh, maybe he was thinking of his disciples. Maybe this question is really more for his own disciples than for him. Uh, maybe it was time for them to stop following John and start following Jesus. Go then ask him, not because I doubt, but that ye may be instructed, wrote St. Augustine in his commentary on this passage. Whatever the reason for John's question, he was in a dark place, and uh, dark places engender dark questions. A mentor of mine many years ago uh, told me, uh, don't doubt in the dark what God has revealed to you in the light. And I think that's really good advice. If God has shown you something to be true, hold on to it tightly, especially in those dark times and those dark places where we're tempted to, to doubt everything. That is good advice, but I've also come to realize that these dark places also have their purpose. Sometimes God takes us into a season, into a place of uncertainty, loneliness, or loss. When we're there, the temptation is to try and escape or to fight against it or just to numb ourselves against it. But if, we, if we'll be there in that place that God has us, we can also find stillness, clarity, and yes, even joy. 
these dark places are, are the places where we start to ask the questions that we never think to ask when the sun is shining. The questions that we're maybe too afraid to ask. The existential questions. And God smiles because questions are welcome. That's our, there we go. It magically appeared. For John, this question, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another, was an existential question. John's entire life, his whole existence was for one purpose, to prepare the way. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. If Jesus wasn't the one to come, then what was the purpose of John's life? But this is an existential question for us as well. Is Jesus enough? Or should we look for someone or something else? Is Jesus enough to satisfy our thirsty souls or do we need something else? Maybe an enlightening experience, a special relationship, maybe, maybe a good job, the right job, career, an academic degree, whatever it is. Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus the one to come? Jesus, are you enough? Or should I hold out for something else? That's the existential question that we have to ask ourselves. John's question was birthed in the darkness of his prison cell. But he, he knew the answer was not to be found there. And, and if you've been in a dark place, or you're in a dark place now, know that you're not going to find the answers to your questions in the darkness of your own soul. Uh, but God is there, and he's listening. Even when we don't feel his presence, he's there. And even when we don't feel or see him working in our lives, he is. And God promises when we call on him, when we ask for wisdom, he'll give it. Now, God's answer to that prayer for wisdom is often a process, and usually on his timetable and, and never on ours. Um, <clears throat> if I buy popcorn, it's always the microwave type. Now, my wife, she prefers the, the stuff you cook on the stove. What I found is that God's answers to prayer are usually not the microwave variety, especially not prayers for wisdom. John was uh, neither at a time or a space to be able to go and ask his questions to Jesus directly. Uh, so instead, he sent people he trusted who could. And sometimes we're in a place where we're too, too confused sometimes even to pray. If you're in that place, we have trusted people here to pray with you, to help take your tough questions to the Lord. Now, Jesus' response to John's question was anything but offense. As provocative as that question was, you know, are you the one who's, who is to come or shall we look for another? Uh, Jesus didn't seem offended at all. Now, he didn't give necessarily the, the answer that John was looking for. I think John might have been pleased with, yeah, absolutely, I'm the guy. Um, instead, what um, Jesus says to John's disciples is, hey, take a look around. You know, what do you see? What do you hear? Yeah, go tell, go tell John that. Uh, my works, saith he, are my words, wrote St. Augustine about this passage. Oftentimes, the answers to our very difficult questions are not to be found in, in tightly wound arguments or lofty platitudes, uh, much as we like to hear those. 
but rather in looking around and taking a look at what God is doing. But that takes time. It takes time and space to look and to listen, uh, to pay attention, to apprehend what God is up to in our own lives and also in the world. Jesus not only doesn't reprove John for his question, uh, but he also gives him the highest praise. Um, there's no one greater uh, than John the Baptist. Um, if, if John is allowed to ask those hard questions, uh, then we are as well. Questions are welcome. When John's disciples came and looking for answers, Jesus told them to look around, but where did he point their attention? The blind receive their sight and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. These words echo the words of Psalm 146, uh, which uh, Sarah just uh, read for us uh, earlier this morning. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. They also echo the words of our Old Testament reading from this morning, Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Why was Jesus so focused on the sick and the poor? Well, he was so focused on the sick and the poor because they are the unmistakable signs of the kingdom of God. Uh, John would have known about Psalm 146. He would have been familiar with Isaiah 35, even without Jesus saying so. Uh, John would have known that these are the unmistakable signs of God's kingdom. And the kingdom of heaven was at hand because the one who is to come had come. In his uh, book, Bible and Mission, uh, the Anglican theologian Richard Bauckham talks about, um, uh, uses the term meta-narrative to describe the overarching stories or narratives that seek to explain all of existence and within which all other stories uh, find their meaning. Uh, the meta-narrative of the Bible, the biblical meta-narrative, is God's story of creation, redemption, and recreation. His bringing in his kingdom, his good purposes for all creation. This is the big story in which all other stories find their place, in which we find a place for our stories. It's from this story that we find our identity as beloved children of God and our purpose collectively as a redeemed community to receive and to reflect God's goodness and love. But there are other meta-narratives out there. The meta-narrative of our age is in direct opposition to the biblical story, to the story of God's creation, redemption, and recreation. In the 21st century Western culture meta-narrative, we are our own creators, and we are our own redeemers. We create our own identities. We write our own stories. We fix our own problems through technology, through education, through social policy. Now, a private piety or personal religion, you know, that's okay, but we don't really have a need for God because we ourselves are gods. If we need redemption at all, we can do it ourselves through therapy, 
through a personal trainer, through TED Talks. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things. I don't want any pushback from that. Uh, my, my daughter there is actually a personal trainer. Um, <laughs> and and who, who doesn't like a good TED Talk? Uh, but the problem is, is those things can't, they can't redeem us. They can't fix what's fundamentally broken. It is into our brokenness and our helplessness that Jesus brings his healing and his hope. Despite our best efforts, we still experience disease and death, broken relationships, unfulfilled hopes. Uh, try as we might to, to fix our society, uh, we still have appalling social injustice and increasing economic inequities. The foundation of our house is cracked. We need Jesus' healing. We need his hope. That's why the sick and the poor are unmistakable signs of his kingdom. There we go. Oh, I got ahead. Um, now, when Jesus, um, uh, Jesus touched the, 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 the blind man, the blind man received back not just his sight, but he also received uh, a restored place a reintegration within his, uh, within his community. Um, <clears throat> as a physician, I, I learned that, um, that disease was a medical problem and poverty was an economic problem. Um, as I went into public health, I learned that both poverty and disease are human problems and they affect not just our bodies, but our bodies, our minds, and our spirits. Uh, disease and poverty isolate us as individuals and they impact communities. True healing, true restoration requires not only healing of the body, healing of the body, mind, and spirit, and also restoration, reintegration into community. The kingdom of God is not just about bringing people to God, but bringing people into restored relationships with one another. Not just redeeming individuals, but bringing us into a redeemed community where we can receive and reflect uh, God's goodness and his love. When I was in, um, in Kenya several years ago, uh, taking care of HIV patients, uh, we had a 13-year-old boy who um, had been infected with HIV at birth uh, but had stopped taking his medications. We couldn't get him to, to take his medications. Um, his parents had died when he was young, and his caregivers uh, withheld his HIV status from him until he was old enough that he figured it out on his own. And he was, he was angry with the world, and he didn't feel like he could trust any of the people in his life. I was still thinking about what we could do for this, for this young man when I went in to see my next patient. She was a, a middle-aged white woman, originally from the UK, who had been living in Kenya for many years. Uh, she had divorced and was living on her own, uh, although she had many friends and acquaintances in the expat community. Um, she was uh, afraid to share with, the, with any of them her HIV status, so she, she was also truly alone. I noticed that she lived uh, near to where this boy lived, and, and I asked her if she would consider checking in on him. 
And I saw her eyes light up at that suggestion, and she, she went even further. She actually she brought him a bicycle so he could move around on his own. And the two of them became great, if unlikely, friends. Um, he started taking his medication, and neither of them were alone anymore. It's that kind of restoration, healing, and integration are signs of God's kingdom. Jesus uh, ends this, uh, this uh, passage uh, in the gospel reading with a very odd and perplexing uh, statement that's uh, troubled commentators throughout the ages. Uh, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That's kind of confusing. What does it mean to be the least in the kingdom of heaven and what does it mean to be greater than John the Baptist? Uh, this is confusing stuff. The math doesn't really work out really well. I should start out by saying that uh, the kingdom of heaven is kind of a topsy-turvy place to begin with. Um, we enter it by God's grace and mercy, not by our merit. Um, you know, the least or the greatest and the uh, first will be last. And stuff that we value here, like gold, uh, is uh, of so little value they use it to, to pave the streets. Um, the kingdom of heaven is a place where we all will find and do find our value and identity in Christ. And so discussions about who's the least and who's the greatest probably have a very different um, meaning there. I don't have time to go into all the different ways that this passage has been understood, and I, I don't really have a particular interest in convincing you of one over the other. Jesus oftentimes says things that work on, you know, more than one level at the same time. Um, I will say at least one reason, one way in which the least in the kingdom of heaven uh, might be greater than John the Baptist is that John was before and we're after. He was the messenger, but we've received the message. Isaiah wrote, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. We read that uh, this morning. Uh, it was John's duty, it was his job, to make straight in the desert that highway for the Lord. Jesus called him a burning and shining lamp. Uh, John was not the true light coming into the world, but he was a lamp in the darkness to lead people to the true light. And when the lamp brings us to the true light, his work is finished. John's work is finished, but our work is not. Those of us who have trusted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we bear the light of Christ. We've been baptized with the fire of the Holy Spirit, and we, we reflect the radiance and glory of God. We have work to do in the world. When Jesus said, you are the light of the world, he uses a plural pronoun there. All y'all are the light of the world both individually and collectively, as a redeemed community, we together bear the light of Christ. There we go, it's up there. We do that imperfectly. I think we're all aware of that. But we're brighter together than we are alone. So perhaps a prison cell is not such an ironic place to light the candle of joy. Along with love and peace, Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And joy can be found even in our places of darkness. There we go. John the Baptist shone like a lamp 
even in the darkness of his prison cell, so also we are not without light in the dark places of our lives. The light of Christ is the one true light, brings joy in the midst of sorrow, peace in the midst of chaos, and hope in the midst of despair. Joy is not the kind of thing that you can go out to the store and buy. Uh, you can't order it on Amazon. Uh, I've tried. You can't, you can't do it. And, um, and you can't even make it with your own hands. It's a, it's a work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. The joy of Jesus is to be found in his presence. Emmanuel, God with us. But I do think that we have some role to play in experiencing that joy. Um, I, I have a confession to make. I, I, I'm not a coffee drinker, but I do have a certain weakness for Diet Mountain Dew. This is actually water in here. It's not the real stuff. <laughs> but as I was preparing this sermon, I had my trusty bottle of Diet Mountain Dew next to me, and I accidentally knocked it over. Now, the cap was on tightly, so nothing spilled. But then absentmindedly, I picked it up to take a drink, took the cap off, and this is just water. So, But you know what would happen if it were the real thing. It, it just just flows all over and you know really that's that's what our joy should be like uh, something that's in our hearts the joy of the Lord and our strength but something that flows over uh, to other people and I think sometimes we need to work at it uh, to shake ourselves and others up by reminding each other of God's goodness and his love so that the, that joy doesn't stay in the bottle it flows over into the world joy to the world our song says uh, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. I'd like to close out our time by giving you a little bit of an Advent reflection. This is a portion of a, of a poem called The Man Who Is a Lamp by the Catholic theologian John Shea. Listen to it and, um, and then reflect on how is God preparing me to receive joy this Advent season. The Man Who Is a Lamp. Are you the one who is to come? is the question of John Highway. His road under construction, hammer and pick and hard hat song, I have leveled a mountain and raised a valley to make even the path of the Lord. You are the mountain his sunburnt muscles are slamming into cracked rock. You are the valley his tattooed arms are filling with broken earth. He will trowel you to smooth and when there is no impediment when there is nothing in you which would cause a child to trip, you will yearn for someone to arrive and ask the question that guards the cave of Christmas. Are you the one who is to come?